about getting through it quickly. It's about digesting it, but there's just a lot there. And uh, as we've focused on it and meditated on it, there's some really cool things in this chapter. But we're going to pick back up in chapter 19. And I, I love this last aspect of it because as James has been talking to us about these various trials that we all go through and, and what they're all about. I want to recap all that. I'm going to hit it a little bit later on. But I know that a lot of this has been application. But this, this la- these last verses, it gets down to the nitty-gritty, so to speak. It's, I mean, if, you don't, if we're not doing this last part, the, the, the first things that we've studied through and, and what James has been telling us about, they really will be unfruitful in our lives. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is who here has ever gone through a trial? No? no? Yeah? Oh, okay. Who likes going through trials? <laughs> but if you're going to go through a trial, and the Bible tells us that these trials are for a refining process, a testing of our faith, don't you want that time to have been fruitful? You know what I mean? You, don't you want to have received everything that you could from it as God has allowed it into your life? And yeah, I, I'm that way. I mean, I, I'm one of these guys, productivity is important to me. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I have a hard time with waiting, as we were talking about that even a few weeks ago, is because there's just a lack of productivity in many cases, not always. I mean, waiting and resting on the Lord is very obviously very productive, but waiting in the line at Walmart or at the, the, the four-way stop when the other people don't know how to go, that's not productive. And, and that can cause, that, that's a Canyon City anomaly, by the way. You go anywhere else but Canyon City and people know how to go through four-way stops and roundabouts, but not here. But the things that that whole idea for productivity is, is there sense to, there gives a sense of peace and value when you know that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a fruit out of it, that there's a gain, that there's something productive, a good thing that God's doing. And I'm here to tell you that this last, these last verses, it brings it all together. And it, it, lots of these things that James has been talking about hinges on what we read in these last verses and, and in regards to the, the, the productive part of what James has been talking to us about ultimately is our spiritual maturity, right? Growing spiritually. And so with that, let's read verse 19 through 27, and um, I'll read and you follow along, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So it says in verse 19, so then, and that kind of gives you an idea that we're transitioning. After all these things, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We could stop there and we could probably do a whole hour on just that, but we won't because he goes on. He says for, he gets to explain it and he gives us reasons for why. And he says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And man, as a, as a, as a parent, that verse has spoken multitudes of, of wisdom to me because as a parent, you ever just get frustrated with your kids and you're just like, ah, why don't you do the right thing? And it's just a reminder that getting angry or doesn't bring forth righteousness. <clears throat> Nevertheless, we got to look at that in the context of what is being spoken as well in relationship to our own spiritual growth and maturity, and we'll get to that. But in verse 21, James goes on and says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, 
And receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. And just so you know, the, if back in verse uh, 22, that, that, that being doers of the word and, and hearers, not only hearers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, underline that deceiving yourselves. I think a lot of focus gets put on that being a doer and of the word and not a hearer only, and, and that deceiving yourself kind of gets, it's like most people don't even know that's part of that verse. But really, a lot of what hinges on here in regards to spiritual maturity hinges on this deceiving yourself. And so he goes on again in verse 20 and 23, and he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And truthfully, most men are like that. We wake up in the morning, we look in the, in the mirror, and we just like, see ya. You know, that's probably the extent of our time in the mirror, except for guys like Jacob and, 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 and others who, who care more about. <laughs> but, verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does. And man, I think we all want to be blessed. And so we're given a formula. We're given some instructions, some key things. And then in verses 26 and 27, it says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, again, being deceived, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, now as we study through your word that we have read, that you would speak to us through the power and enlightenment that comes from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we even studied last Sunday, Lord, that the carnal man, the natural man, does not understand uh, spiritual things of God, nor um, can we know them. And so, God, we need you and we call upon you. We know you're here in this place. You've been in our prayers and in our worship through the song, and God, as we continue to worship you, we make ourselves, Lord, um, malleable in our hands, and we, we confess to you, Father, that we're in need of you, and Lord, we ask that um, you would do a good work in us through the study of your word tonight, that we may know your Son more, Jesus Christ, and that we may be more like him as you transform us and conform us into his image, and God, that we would be your children who bring glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's a quick recap because this all really hinges on what we studied before. And so as we recap this, I want to connect it, and I'm going to do it briefly. But as James began this letter, if you look towards the front of the chapter, he began by telling us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. And then right, right away, that's like, you know, someone, if you were a cat, that would be like someone rubbing your fur the wrong way. It's like, oh, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It kind of rubs us the wrong way. Um, but with this, James went on to identify the kinds of trials that we go through, and, and he describes them really as a testing of our faith. And we took to, in doing all that, we talked about how our, our, our outlook really determines the outcome of the situation in regards to the work of God being done in our lives through these various trials. And, and so James is calling us to have the right outlook on these various trials, seeing that, that we can count it joy because God's doing a work. 
He's doing a work in us, and he's revealing himself to us. And, and, and so these tests of faith, which are designed by God, are designed to do a work in us. And when we come to the end of this chapter in verses 26 and 27, we see always that God does the work in us so that God may do the work through us, so that we don't have a, a useless religion, so to speak. And, and we'll talk about that word a little later on. But, but a, So that God does a work in us so that God might do that work through us. And as James continued, he instructed us on how to navigate through these trials so that we might be blessed. And again, that's talked about here in these verses. But last week, as we studied through verses 12 through 18, James also told us, he was instructing us and was teaching us on how to resist and overcome the temptations that we encounter when we go through trials. Because there is a temptation, many different kinds, and we, we talked about those, and I don't want to go through all that. But, but in part of receiving the blessing is being able to overcome the temptation, not being derailed and you're in the midst of the trial. And, and as we go through these tests of faith, 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 and in those verses that we read about last week, James was challenging us or he challenged us um, saying that when, we face, when we're faced with temptations, he tells us this. He gave us really three things to consider. To, to help us overcome the temptations that we face in the midst of the trials. The first thing he said is he said, remember, he said, consider the judgment of God. And yeah, I mean, if you, if you realize that, that, you know, God's there to judge the evil and the wicked things, and, and God's a God who's a just God, you need to consider that when you're, when you're faced with temptation. In addition to that, he said, that's not it. He said, that's not the only thing to consider, not just the judgment of God, but also the goodness of God, Right? Consider the goodness of God, the judgment of God, God and the goodness of God. And the fact, the last thing he said, consider this, the fact that you and I, we're not the same people we used to be in regards to temptations, meaning that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And before we gave our lives to Christ, before we were filled with the Holy Spirit, we were powerless to the temptation, you know? Um, I was talking to a guy today who was fishing in Alaska, and he said, and I've experienced this, you, go, you fish in Alaska, and whatever you throw in front of the fish is they take it, and you get tired of fishing. I, thought, I never thought I would get tired of catching fish when I was there, but you get literally tired of fishing, and, 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 but we can be like that fish, or we were like that, that kind of a fish before we gave our lives to Christ, where we were like, at everything that came by that was tempting us, we were powerless, and, and it's different, James is saying, now that we're, we're believers in Christ who have the Holy Spirit living inside us and that, and that we now have the Holy Spirit to help us, to empower us so that we might resist and overcome, overcome the temptations of sin that we face during the times of trial and then times of testing. Now, with all of that being brought together to, to a, a point here as we look at these final verses, in the final words of this chapter, James is now putting an emphasis on the dangers of self-deception. And this is so important to, to realize because if you're, if you're deceived by yourself, you know what? You really don't know it. That's the bummer thing about self-deception is, is you're deceiving yourself. It's, it's, there's a blindness. And Autumn was praying for her brother who knows the truth. And we all know people like that. They're just completely spiritually blind to the truth that they know. Well, the fact of the matter is James is writing this to believers and he warns us against this kind of deception because the truth is, is we all are in some area of our life right now, guaranteed, deceived by ourselves, We are. 
And the Bible tells us that it requires God to make the truth known to us so that we can have those own scales removed off of our, our own eyes. Now, that's, there's that, that process that we're going through where God makes these things known to us, but there's also this opportunity to be unwilling or, or a willingness to be self-deceived. Right? That can happen, too, in believers' lives. People who've known the truth have gone away from it, and then for one reason or another, they want to do this, so they do this, and they live in a place of self-deception because it's comfortable, because it's convenient, because lots of various things. So there's two different venues or avenues of this, but it's something that we need to be aware of, and this is what he's talking about. And in doing so, he speaks about the importance of applying God's Word to our lives. And we're going to talk about why that's so important, but the fact of the matter is the Word of God is the tool that reveals our self-deception. That's it. You see, as Christians, we can fool ourselves when it comes to our own walk, and we can easily think that we may be spiritual in lots of areas of our life when we are not. And here's a prime example. All of you be honest, and you don't have to think about someone else in this room. Think about others. But where you go, man, does that person just not see where they're blowing it? Have you ever thought that about somebody? And, and, you know, when I've done that, then I'm always fearful, and I go, wow, what do people see in me that I don't see? Right? Because that's true about all of us. It is. And so we can fool ourselves and think that we're more spiritual than we're not. And then also pride creeps in at that point, and it's not a good thing. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Roman, the Christians in Rome, and he warned of this saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He said, For I say, through the grace that is given to me, in other words, he's kind of saying, listen, I'm no different than you guys. Listen, I live by grace also. So he's saying, I'm speaking from this position of grace, one who's a fallen, dirty, rotten sinner just like the rest of you. He says, For I say, through the grace that is given to me, to everyone who is among you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. But think soberly as God has dealt to each one, excuse me, a measure of faith. You know, and when we remember that the underlying message of this letter is about becoming spiritually mature, each chapter and marks or, or evidences of spiritual maturity, we need to realize that a mark or an evidence of spiritual maturity is when a person is willing to look at their self honestly and know exactly who and what we are like and then admit the weaknesses that we have and confess our needs before God and to one another. It's the importance of having a church body, a church family, where you go, listen, Curtis, and I've done this with Curtis and some of the other guys that are elders and, and, and people who I respect, I, I am weak and foolish in this area, and, and God's revealed it to me, and I need you to hold me accountable. Be in my business, because I'm weak. And that's, a, that's being weak isn't immaturity, isn't an immaturity, but being unwilling to confront that honestly and then take precautionary measures is foolishness. It is immature. And so, on the contrary to that, that's that the, the, the immature person will make excuses for their ungodliness when there's a revelation. Um, uh, not only for their, for their ungodliness as a whole, but their ungodly decisions, their ungodly behaviors, and their ungodly ways. And in doing so, they pretend to really have a need of nothing or no one, right? Sadly, this person is dishonest, 
in evaluating their self in light of God's word, and it's this person who is bound or captive and being held captive to really live in a life of hypocrisy. And I don't know about you, but I hate hypocrisy. I hate being the hypocrite. And, 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 and that's, that's a hard thing. I don't think anybody really likes that. I don't think anybody wants to be that when we really see that that's the in measure of it. So in the last verses of this chapter, James tells us, if you're taking notes, that we have three responsibilities towards God's word. And if we fulfill these responsibilities, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have an honest walk with God and an honest walk with each other. So, if you're taking notes, James first tells us that we're to receive, that's the key word, that we're to receive the word of God. Secondly, he says we have a responsibility to practice the word of God. And thirdly, we have a responsibility to share the word of God. Now let's look at this. And back in verse 19, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of God does not produce for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, verse 21, lay aside every filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive, again, that word, the first instruction, with meekness, receive with meekness the planted, implanted word of God which is able to save your soul. <clears throat> now, in these first verses, this is where James tells us um, about receiving the word of God, and he refers to the word of God or when he references it, he, he says it's the implanted word of God, right? And it's very descriptive and illustrative way of putting this forth. And I don't know about you, but when I hear it in that kind of descriptive or illustrative light, it directs my attention directly to the, the words of Jesus Christ in regards to the parable of the sower of the seed, right? The implanted word of of God. And that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13, in the parables first told in verses 1 through 9, and then Jesus goes on to explain the parable in verses 18 through 23. And in this parable, Jesus compared God's word to a seed or to the seed that a farmer sows, right? And, to the, and the, then he goes on to compare the human heart to the different types of soil that the seed is scattered on. And in doing so, Jesus described really four different conditions of the heart of men. Um, the hard heart, which does not understand or receive the word, and as a result, it bears no fruit because the seed or what has been scattered on it does not penetrate down into the heart and it's therefore easily snatched away by the enemy. There is also, in addition to the hard heart, the Bible talks about a shallow heart. And, and a shallow heart is, is, can really be defined as, 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 as the emotional heart. The one who's excited, receives the word of God with joy. The excited about the word of God. But it doesn't go any further than an excitement, than just an, uh, 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 an emotional kind of reception. And in doing so, there's no depth, Jesus says, to this heart. And even though we see in the comparison that some of the seeds that were sown would take root in this in this shallow heart, the roots don't penetrate down very deep. So when the various trials that James speaks about, right, come, uh, those, those seeds that, that, that took root and have sprouted up, Jesus says they quickly wither away before they even have a chance to bear, to bear any fruit. And in the, in the end, this heart, that is the shallow heart, also bears no fruit. But there, in addition to the, the, the hard heart and the shallow heart, Jesus also said that a person can have a crowded heart. 
which is a heart that receives the word but also allows for their sin because Jesus spoke about the, 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 that, that heart being like the soil that has the weeds and the, and the thorns that spring up, right, and chokes, chokes out, which has taken root. And, and, and that would be compared to the, the, the crowded heart. And we know that the love of the world is, 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 is something that permits this crowdedness to take place in our heart, to literally coexist with the word of God. And Jesus said, again, this is not a good thing because in doing so, the word is crowded and choked out. And this heart, Jesus says, is also an unfruitful heart. And lastly, there's the fruitful heart or the, 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 the seed that lands on the good soil. A, a heart that receives the word of God. And, and, and in doing so, it's, it's the receiving of it allows for it to take root. And this heart, Jesus said, simply produces much fruit. Some 30-fold, 60, and up to 100-fold. And in light of this, we see that in order for the Word of God to take hold, guys, into our hearts and work in our lives in a way that bears much fruit, we must receive it, but it needs to be received in a right way. Because God's scattering the seed of His Word into the hearts of many people. And at any given time, you and I can have a heart of any one of these four kinds of descriptions, can we not? Yeah, we can be hard-hearted, or we can just receive it in an emotional way. Yes, that was so awesome. And that's all the further it goes. Or we can receive it with a crowded heart where we go, where we go into the, where the world just like, yeah, we want that too. We can't, it doesn't coexist. It doesn't work. Or we can have the heart that's willing to receive it in a right way. And on many occasions, Jesus, when teaching God's word, he said this. He said, take heed to what you hear. Remember? Jesus would say that. Take heed to what you would hear. And he would say that many times, but he would also say this many, ta- many times. Take heed to how you hear. Take heed to what you hear and take heed to how you hear. And it's, 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 it's taking us back to this receiving of God's word. In other words, it's possible for us to read our Bibles or sit into church and to listen to God's word being taught and become dull of hearing and never grow spiritually. And that's what James is talking about here in regards to receiving it. This is also one of the things that Paul had accused his Christian readers of in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. You, you know, he's going on and he's going on and you almost hear it. He gets a little frustrated with them because Paul's wanting to teach them about some really cool, deep things of God. And he stops and he goes, I just can't do it. I, can't, I want to do this with you guys and I can't do it because he explained that in order, he want, even though he'd wish to, to, to speak to them in, in, a, in a deeper sense, he said, you just, you're not going to understand because of your spiritual maturity. He said, you've grown dull and hard of hearing. That's what Paul said. But also in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus had answered his disciples who had begun to ask Jesus why he was now teaching in parables, Jesus had said the exact same thing in regards to the Hebrew people at that time. And he quoted from the book of Isaiah, and he accused the Hebrew people of being dull of heart and hard of hearing, saying in verses 14 through 15, he says, for the hearts of the people, this was his reason for now speaking in parables. He said, for the hearts of the people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. The point is, guys, even though you and I can spend time reading of the Word of God and listening to it, um, 
we can still be at risk of not growing spiritually. So if the seed of God's word is to be implanted into our hearts, then what we have to do is we need to obey the instructions that James gives us. We need to obey the instruction that James gives us in these verses where he previously says, before verse 21, that we must be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And, and, and he says, in addition to that, we must have a prepared heart. Four things in, re, in regards to receiving the word of God. Remember, Romans chapter 10, 17 says this. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So hearing is an important part of receiving the word of God, which brings forth faith. And these various trials are for the testing of our faith. You see it all connecting together. And when it comes to the hearing, James says this. He gives us an instruction. He says, be swift. Swift to hear. And the idea behind this admonition to be swift to hear, it's like a servant who is one to hear his master's voice and then is quickly to do what he has been commanded. Swift to hear. Picture it. I mean, there's all these Down Abbey and all these other old, like, uh, shows that are doing with England where there's servants, and, and it's like the servants just stand there, right? And when, and when the master speaks, the servant does what? Does he sit down and not do it, or does he argue? No, he just like, he's gone and does it. And, and that's this, the same kind of picture. And so swift to hear, it means, first of all, to be alert. You got to be alert. You got to be attentive. And then you must be responsive to the things that you have heard. Alert, attentive, and responsive. And there's a really good illustration of this that is exampled for us in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament in chapter 23. And, and it's a really cool story, story. And we're told about a time when David, he was hiding from the Philistines, who were at that time in possession of a very special place, the city of Bethlehem. And David loved Bethlehem. It was his hometown. It was where he was born. It was the place he had grown up. And as David was sitting in the caves of Adullam, weary from fighting the Philistines, he spoke in just kind of a nonchalant way, but he expressed this longing to his buddies, to his men who were around him, about his desire. He said, I just want to, I would love to have a drink from the well in Bethlehem. Now, David had not issued any order for his men to get him a drink. He simply said to himself in verse 15, he said this, Oh, that one would give me a drink from the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. But you know what? In response to hearing this, we're told in that passage of Scripture that three of David's mighty men, they took action. And they broke through the Philistines' ranks through the front lines, they snuck into Bethlehem at night and they risked their lives to get this water from the well and bring it to David. You know what they were? Swift to hear. Swift to hear. And when we're told that we're called to receive the word of God, it's in that manner, swift to hear. Now, in addition to being swift to hear, we're told in verse 19 that we're also told to be slow to speak. And man, if you've ever thought about speaking and listening, Together, you, you know that you can't be swift to hear and, 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 and quick to speak, right? It, it just doesn't, they don't work together. If you're going to be swift to speak or, or swift to hear, you need to be slow to speak. Or maybe you shouldn't even speak at all, right? 
Because the more you speak, the more it's going to slow you down. And, and, and so this admonition seems to fit just, just uh, out of, of a common sense factor. But I want to put it this way. First of all, I know I'm not the first person to point this out, but it bears pointing out at this, at this time. We have two ears and one mouth. But as I point this out, in doing so, it should remind us that we should listen more than we should speak. And if you want to be a great communicator, that's, that's a lesson that they teach. Listen. And then listen some more. And then listen some more. And if you do speak, it's so that you can ask questions so that you can understand by listening some more. That's what communicate, good communication is about. But in relationship to receiving the word of God, what we know is that we're told to be slow to speak. And so what we're seeing is, is that there are many times when we're listening to God and we're not swift to hear because we're simply quick to speak. And, and what we're doing is, is in those times, lots of times we're choosing to argue against God's word. Maybe not audibly, but certainly arguing against God's word, which we're called to receive. And then we're arguing against God's word in our heart, Mm-mm-mm, right? And in our minds, rather than taking actions in accordance to what we've heard. And there's a danger with this because... When we're speaking or arguing, you know what? We're not capable of being a good, a good hearer, a good listener, and therefore we cannot be swift to hear. In short, it's highly unlikely that we're willing to receive God's word if we're not slow to speak. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says this, In the multitudes of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And in Proverbs 17, 27, he says this, He who has knowledge spares his words. He who has knowledge spares his words. There was this guy growing up, that was my dad's friend we used to duck hunt with. And um, I, don't, I don't remember the guy's name now. I was a young kid. He was my dad's bud. But this guy, he didn't speak hardly at all. I mean, my dad would talk, and he would be one of these guys who just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so hunting with this guy was kind of dreary because you're sitting in a duck blind, if you've ever done that, and, and it's like you want to visit with your buddies as you're waiting for the ducks to come in. This guy would just make sounds. But what I remember, and one of the things that my dad liked and respected this man is because when he did speak, he spoke wisdom, and it was with very few words. And it wasn't that he wasn't listening, he was but he just chose what he said carefully. And when he did speak, it was, it was words that were valuable and important. And, and so I love that, that, that proverb in 1727, he who has knowledge spares his words. So swift to hear, slow to speak. And lastly, what James shows here also is slow to wrath. In other words, in the context of receiving the implanted word of God, we're warned to not get angry. And what would we be getting angry What's, what's the admonition to not get angry? Well, don't, if God's telling you to receive his word, and, and, and so if, you're, if, you're getting, if we're warned to not get angry, what are you getting angry? You're getting angry with God, and you're getting angry with his word. And when anger is involved in receiving the word of God, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to receive the word of God. And this is an appropriate admonition simply because God's word does this. It exposes things that we might be deceived to or things that we don't want to see. It exposes not only the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, 
The Bible says the Word of God convicts us of our sin, and it tells us what the truth is. Have you ever told somebody the truth when they not want to hear it? It's like, that could, be, that could be setting off a volcano, right? Wives, have you ever had to go to your husbands? Speak the truth. <laughs> Come on now. We've all experienced this. I'll just say it. My wife has had to come to me and speak the truth, and there's been times that I've expressed wrath. And, and it can be very unpleasant. And the same is true at times. We react that way. That's, that's, that's it's speaking to a human nature that we all have. And, 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 and it can be even more of an unpleasant thing when God does it, meaning where he reveals the thoughts and the intents of our hearts or convicts our sin or tells us our truth. It could be even more unpleasant when God does it with a messenger other than the Holy Spirit, right? Like a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister, when, they send, when the Lord sends them to confront us with our word, with his word. And we're told to be slow to wrath. Because when we get angry and, and, and are not slow to wrath, we're like the person who... Um, would break a mirror simply because they dislike the image in it, right? Because God's word is like a mirror. We're going to talk about it. And he goes, see, look. And you get ticked at it and you go, it's the mirror's fault, right? In short, we rebel against God's word because it tells us the truth about ourself and our sinfulness. And James says, don't get angry. If you're going to receive it, don't get angry. And James warns against this and reminds us in verse 20 that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, when we get angry, what it does is it hinders us from receiving God's word. And, and, and it hinders this process of sanctification that comes as a result of God's word. Sanctification doesn't happen when we're angry. In Proverbs 14, verse 29, it says, he, is slow to, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive, and the anger is a, an action of impulse, he says he exalts folly. So you can either be a fool or you can be wise, is what the, the, the proverb is telling us. And, and now there are certainly is, we, if we're going to talk about anger a little bit, there certainly is a godly anger that the Bible speaks about in regards to an anger, a godly anger against sin. And that's spoken about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And guys, here's the truth, is, is if we love God, we, get, we must hate sin, starting with our own. But James makes it a point to tell us here in verse 20 that, that, that man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. God's anger does not produce, man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. In fact, what it does is it prevents righteousness. Anger prevents righteousness. And in light of receiving God's word and being changed by it, we must see that if we're offended or angered when confronted by God's word, our anger will not only give birth to unrighteousness, it'll give, give birth to spiritual immaturity. In fact, back in verse 4, of this chapter as we're connected it all together when James told us to allow for patience to have its perfect work in us we need to see that anger is often a byproduct of impatience right at least it can be for me if i'm impatient lots of times i get angry 
And, and, and in that, as we see it as this byproduct of impatience, we have to see that it ultimately hinders this process of sanctification that God is doing in us. Now, in addition to these instructions, okay, we've had swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. If you look at verse 21, it's telling us ultimately that we must have a heart that is prepared to receive the implanted word of God. And you've got to think about this preparation in light of the way that it's being described to us. And, and I'll get to that in a minute. But when we consider, again, the parable that Jesus spoke about how the word of God is, 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 is scattered like a seed and our hearts are like the soil, right? We need to realize that if we're going to receive the seed of God's word in a way that will be fruitful, in a way that we will be blessed, in a way that we will be sanctified, in a way that we will have productivity as a result of the trial and the testing of our faith, then our heart must be in a constant state of readiness. Our hearts must be in a constant state of readiness. And when soil, as Scott knows, is made ready for seeds that are to be planted, there's a process that you go through. There has to be a preparation. And, and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but what I know for sure is that the ground has to be tilled. Right, Scott? There has to be tilling of the, of the soil. And then there has to be, when you till stuff up, it, it brings things to the surface. And then the rocks and the weeds are removed. And likewise, James here in verse 21 is telling us to pull the weeds, to have a prepared heart. He's saying, remove the rocks. Pull the weeds from our lives in order that our hearts will be prepared for the word of God to be implanted. And this is why he says there, if you look, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And just like it would be foolish to plant a garden and try to plant a garden in soil that was unprepared, it's equally foolish for us to attempt to receive God's word in an unprepared heart. In light of this, we need to understand that the first step in preparing the soil of our heart to receive God's word is this, confessing your sins, confessing our sin. And asking God then to forgive us. Then it is necessary to meditate on God's love. God's goodness. God's kindness. God's mercy. God's grace. And ask him to plow up any hardness that is in our heart. In order to reveal the areas of our lives where we're resisting him. Where we're spiritually blind. Where we're deceiving ourselves. And this is why James in verse 21 tells us to receive God's word with an attitude of what? What does it say there? Meekness. With an attitude of meekness. For meekness is the very opposite, or it's in the opposite category of wrath. In that, when we receive God's word with meekness, what we're doing is we're accepting it. We do not resist or argue with it. And we honor it as the word of God. We honor God's word as the word of God, as the master has spoken to the servant. In other words, when we receive God's word with meekness, what we'll do is we won't try to twist it. We won't try to conform it to our way of thinking. Rather, we receive the word of God with meekness, we believe it, and we practice it. Literally, we do it. And so in verse 22, James goes on and then says what? But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror for he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was now the truth is it's not simply not enough to just be a hearer of the word of god 
We must act upon hearing it. In other words, we must live in a way that reflects what we profess we believe. Guys, that's so important. We must live in a way that reflects what we profess to believe. Right? Because when we don't, the H word comes in, right? You've all been probably called that. You're just a hypocrite. Maybe you even said it to yourself. You're a, I'm a hypocrite. We must live in a way that reflects what we profess to believe. This is one of the greatest evidences of a spiritual mature person. Right? You see, many people have the mistaken idea that if you hear a good sermon or you listen to a good Bible study, that that's going to make them grow. That, that we simply grow by if it was a good study or if it was a good sermon. And, and in doing so, we're going to receive God's blessing. But James points out that it's not the hearing but the doing that brings the blessing. It's the hearing, not the hearing, but the doing that brings the blessing. And in the previous verses where James compared the word of God to a seed that is implanted in our hearts, he now in these verses takes the word of God and compares it to a mirror. In fact, there are two other references in the Bible um, that liken God's word to a mirror or has an attachment to a mirror. Only two other places in the Bible. And when they are put together alongside this admonition from James here, we see really three specific functions of the mirror in relationship to it being, or the three specific functions of the Word of God as it in comparison to being like a mirror. Three specific uh, functions. And the first function of God's Word in action uh, uh, in relationship to a mirror is that it's for examination. Who here uses a mirror to examine yourself? Right? That's a, yep, Jacob, he's, he's confessing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's a natural thing for a mirror. It's used for examination. And examination is obviously the main purpose of a mirror as it enables us to see and make ourselves look as clean and neat as possible. And the fact of the matter is, is when we look into the mirror of God's word, we see ourselves as we really are. It's not always a good thing. Especially if you get older, you look into the mirror and you go, oh, that is not me. Right? But the mirror doesn't lie. God's word is the same way. And in verses 24 through 25, James, in relationship to the mirror being as a tool of examination, James takes the opportunity in verses 24 and 25 to note for us several mistakes that we can make when we look into God's word as a mirror for examination. And he says, first of all, he says we can, we can just briefly glance into it, right? That we can briefly glance at ourselves, and in doing so, we remain unchanged. And the point is, is if we're only reading our Bibles as some kind of religious exercise or, or, or duty that we feel that we are obligated to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen? You're going to fail to profit from it even if you're doing it every day because you're not looking at it with this idea of examining. You're just briefly glancing at it, and you're going away. You're forgetful here. So when we read God's Word, we must study it. And in addition to studying it, when we read it, we must study it. But in addition to studying it, we need to meditate on it. I mean, think about it. You stand in the mirror in the morning, and it's like you're studying. You see something wrong there. You're like, 
you got to get a closer look. You're going to meditate on that flaw that you see, those wrinkles or, you know, the, the things that some people might do. I don't know. But there, there's, there's a time spent there, a digging into it deeply, and that's the point. But the second st- mistake that James point out is, is that we forget what we've been shown. Part of the self-deception is in forgetting. However, if we look deeply enough, guys, here's the deal. If we're willing to look deeply enough, deeply enough into our hearts, what we are to see would be unforgettable. Maybe painful, but it would be unforgettable. Remember the prophet Isaiah who cried out saying in chapter 6, I believe it was, Woe is me for I am undone. And he said this when he saw what God had shown to him about himself. Examination. And if we're willing to go to that deep place, God's going to show us and we're going to go, whoa, woe is me. We won't forget. Remember, in addition to, to the prophet Isaiah, there was the also uh, Peter who for the very same reason cried out to God, to Jesus Christ, when he, was, when he saw himself in light of the Word of God, standing before him, Jesus in the flesh, right? The Word became flesh. And he said this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So we must be willing to, 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 in an, to honestly look long enough and deep enough into the Word of God as not to forget what it is that God has shown us about ourselves through His Word. In addition to this, the last mistake that we can make when coming to the mirror of God's Word is that we fail to obey, James says. We fail to obey what God's Word has has told us. In other words, hearing is not the same as doing. And therefore, after seeing ourselves, we must remember what we are and what God has to say about us. And then we must do what he has told us because the blessing comes in doing. And it was Jesus who said in John chapter 13, verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then in verse 25, here James calls the word of God this, I love it, the perfect law of liberty. You see, Jesus, God doesn't have us look into the mirror as a thing of examination in order to put us in chains. He does it to set us free from ourselves. Because when we obey God's word, when we're confronted with who we are, see the truth of of what God has for us and what he commands it, and we're not just a hearer, we're a doer. You know what? When we obey it, the Bible tells us basically we're set free. We're set free. It was Jesus who said in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So examination is the first function of the mirror of the word, and the second is restoration. I love that. I mean, once we examine ourselves in the mirror and we see, you know, you got to put on your wrinkle cream, maybe you got to take care of a blemish. I mean, you're looking to do some restoration here. And the same is true with God and his word in the mirror. It's like God wants to do a restoration. But first there's examination, and the second function of the mirror of the word 
As far as restoration is seen in, 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 in this connection and, and also in the Word of God where, where, where in the Bible where the Word is found in, in connection to mirrors in Exodus chapter 28. It may seem a little, a little odd place for it, but in Exodus chapter 28 verse 8, we're told that when Moses was building the tabernacle according to the plans that God had given him, that he took all of the mirrors from the women, the bronze mirrors, they didn't have glass mirrors like we do do. They had shiny pieces of bronze they would look to examine themselves. And what Moses did with those, those bronze mirrors is he melted them down and he made them into what was called the bronze laver. And the bronze laver, it's a pretty cool thing because the bronze laver was this huge basin that stood between the altar of sacrifice and the holy place. Between the altar of sacrifice and the holy place of God. And this basin was filled with water so that the priests could then come and wash their hands and feet as they were commanded before they entered into the holy place and do the work of God. And many times the Bible uses the water for washing or as an example of how God's word has the ability to restore us, right? To cleanse us from our sin and from our unrighteousness. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 26, this is an example where it talks about husbands and wives, where it says, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Additionally, in Psalm 119, verse 9, David writes and he says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. The point is, the mirror of God's word not only examines and reveals our sins, it helps to cleanse us and restores us back to the place from where we have fallen. So as we come to God's word and meditate on it, washing ourselves in it, like the Old Testament priests had washed themselves in the laver, the bronze laver that were taken from the mirrors, we will have our hearts and minds cleansed from the sin which defiles us. But if we stop with examination and restoration, we'll miss out on the full benefit of the mirror aspect of the word. And this is why there's the third function of the mirror and why it's so important as the third function of the mirror of the God's word is for transformation. It's for transformation. And after, after God restores us through the washing of his word, he wants to change us, the Bible tells us, so that we will grow. God desires for us to become spiritually mature. And in doing so, that we won't commit those same sins that we're tempted to do again. Where there's liberty, where we're set free. And sadly, as Christians, you know what? We often confess our sins. And we can be good at that, and we can claim the forgiveness of God, but yet we don't grow because the old man remains, and in doing so, we continue to do the same sins over and over and over again, and we feel like the Apostle Paul that goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from me? <coughs> Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of the Lord from glory to glory just as by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Simply put, when we who are the children of God look into the mirror of God's Word, what we see is we see Jesus, the living Word, the Word of God, the Son of God. And in turn, what we are is we're transformed into His likeness, into His image. 
Now, the cool thing about this is this Greek word for transform that we're talking about is the word metamorpho, and it's where we get our English word metamorphosis, and it describes this process of change that we're going through, and it refers to a change that comes from the inside out. And just like an ugly worm is transformed into a beautiful butterfly, when we look into the Word of God and we see Jesus, we're transformed from the inside out into a thing of beauty. So our first responsibility is to receive the Word of God, and then we must practice it and be a doer of the Word of God. But lastly, or thirdly, we have a responsibility in addition to this that James also writes about in verses 26 and 27, where he says this, And if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God And the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, this word religion, I grew up hating that word. And over many, many years of my life, I still hate that word religion because it has a certain connotation in my mind about rules and regulations and a God who was just looking to squish you when you didn't do what you were told to do. But but in these verses, this word religion literally means worship. Or the outward practice of service to God. Okay? And it's used only five times in the entire New Testament, this word, this Greek word. In these verses, it's used three times, just in these verses. And there's only two other times in all of the New Testament. Once in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, and then once in Colossians 2, verse 18, where it's translated really the same word here that's translated from the Greek to the word religion here is translated um, in Colossians 2, 18 to the word worshiping. And you see, what my point is, what, what, what James's point is, is that pure religion has nothing to do with ceremonies. Pure religion has nothing to do with rituals or special days or, or legalism and, 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 and an angry God. Pure religion, pure religion means practicing God's word. That's what it means. An outward service to God. Practicing God's word and sharing it with others through practice. Through our speech, through our service, and by keeping oneself, ourselves separate from the world. And there are many references to speech throughout this letter that James writes to us. And and from this, it's safe to deduct that those in the early church that James was writing to had a problem with their tongues. It was a serious problem. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said that it's our speech, the words that come of our mouths that reveal what's in our, our hearts, right? Therefore, if our heart is right, then our speech will too be right. However, if we, if we do not control our tongue, you know what? Our religion, our outward acts of worship of God, the deeds that we do, the gifts we give, they're useless, James says. Useless in the sense that those whom we share our faith with will then be confused by the inconsistency seen between what we say and what we are doing. 
the tongue, and then our actions. And that's why it all culminates together in relationship to what we say. Sadly, there have been more than one time that an unbeliever has come to me in amazement that someone they know who has not controlled their tongue claimed to be a Christian. And when this has happened, it's very evident that the person's witness and worship of God has then become useless. <clears throat> Yet we risk the very same thing when we too do not control our tongue. And so after we've seen ourselves in the mirror of God's word, you know what? We must see others and their needs. That's what James is saying. Look beyond yourself. Look to others and their needs. Because God's doing a work in us so that God might do a work through us. And James tells us that our religion, guys, our worship of God is only pure when it is backed up by action. In short, our words are not substitute for the deeds of love that God calls us to do. 1 John, I'm going to end with this, 3, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Father, thank you, God, for these words of encouragement. Father, we don't want to be those who are deceived by the wicked hearts that we have, this self-deception. And Lord, as you gaze into our hearts and show us, Lord, what we're like, I pray, God, that we would be swift to hear, slow to, be, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And God, that we would receive what you have for us and that we would be transformed to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we would go from this place, Lord, transformed and conformed. And that we would lay our lives down as a, as, a, as, a, as a reasonable, acceptable sacrifice to you, Lord. Serving and loving one another and those who you put before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good evening.